handouts on your tables. So last week what I handed out was the Nicene Creed, the Creed that they came up with in 325 at Nicaea. Uh, this week what you're looking at now is a little bit different. Um, George, you might actually be looking at last week's, I think, there. But the one that I handed out today is actually the Nicene uh, Constantinopolitan Creed, which is the Nicene Creed with a little bit of an addition. So um, we'll get to that later today. This one comes out later in history. Uh, it came to a point where they decided they needed to improve it a little bit. So if you guys were to look for Nicene Creed today, if you were to find a church and they had a copy of the Nicene Creed, you would probably find this later one, the one that was um, uh, drawn up in Constantinople. Okay, so uh, we're going to get to that. That's the goal of where today's lesson is going to go for that creed. Uh, so last week we talked about Arius, we talked about um, the Arian controversy and um, this big uh, council, the first ecumenical council, because it's the first church-wide council where you got bishops from all over the world, they're trying to get the whole church involved. That happens in Nicaea in uh, 325 AD. So we're going to, what I mentioned last time is we want to talk about kind of what happens after that. So let's go back to the, let's kind of start there at, at Nicaea real quick. Now, how many of you, I know a bunch of you have been to like big church conferences, uh, maybe missions conferences, pastors conferences, um, uh, church organizational conferences, and if you kind of think about that, when you go to these conferences, there's, there's a lot of activity going on. There's the official sessions, um, that are being held, of course, but then outside of those sessions, you have activity going on. People are fellowshipping, maybe there's some unofficial events and so forth going on on the side. Well, the first Council of Nicaea was very similar. You have 300, over 300 bishops from all over the Roman Empire come together, but then with these 300 plus men, you also have a hand, what they bring with them are our elders and deacons and others who kind of assist them. They're kind of there to help them out, also participate in the events to some extent. The bishops are the ones with the authority. They're in the official sessions, um, deliberating. But at their side, they have these other guys, deacons and elders, who are kind of helping them. Now, so, and so you have also this sideline activity that's also going on at, the, at, the, at this council. So there's a, uh, a story that comes to us from a 5th century uh, church father, a church historian, and uh, it, he basically tells us that prior to the official sessions beginning, kind of here on the sideline, there are uh, the participants and various, you know, attenders of the council are engaging in public debates about the Trinity. Arians with non-Arians are kind of having it out in these logical arguments. And uh, the public is kind of coming and watching. Like the people of Nicaea are coming to watch, and uh, as these debates play out, they become heavily engrossed in rather complex, logical arguments. And at one of these contests, according to the story, there's a layman, he's not a deacon, he's not an elder, uh, he's coming, he comes, and he comes to observe, he's a confessor. A confessor is a person who experienced persecution, 
and remained faithful to Christ. They called those guys confessors. And then the ones who didn't remain faithful, they called them lapsed Christians. So this confessor, he's a, a guy who was persecuted, very respected, of course. By the way, what, is this a particular conference we're at? Or just a, council of Nicaea. This is the Council of Nicaea. Okay. On the sidelines. On the side, okay. This, okay. On the side. okay. this confessor, he comes to these debates that are going on on the sidelines there, and he sees this, you know, complex, you know, logical debate, and this is his response. He says this, he kind of rebukes the debaters and says, quote, Christ and his apostles did not teach us dialectics, art, or vain subtleties, but simple-mindedness, which is preserved by faith and good works. Now, in many ways, I think that we, many of us, tend to sympathize with this confessor. Uh, very often, theological debates and explanations, they do, uh, they, they can, can begin to sound a little high-minded, a little bit complex. And after all, God said in, in 1 Corinthians, he said that God uses the simple things to confound the wise, right? And that's true. Um, however, one of the realities that the church is facing at this time and has always really faced is that false teachers have a tendency to use complexities and subtleties to twist what God has plainly said in Scripture. And as well as to, they also use these same sorts of complexities to cloak what they themselves are actually saying, what they themselves are actually claiming. So theology, sound theology, biblical doctrine, has to get complex and precise in its language and its arguments at times in order to expose and refute the claims of false teachers. So that's what is kind of going on here at Nicaea. Now the Arians, just to put it very, very simply, the Arians denied that Jesus was God. But if you were to ask them directly, they wouldn't admit that they denied that Jesus was God. Instead, they sort of paid lip service to the Son being God, while in so many other words, they denied those things that actually make the Son God. That was the difficulty that Alexander of Alexandria and the others who believed in the divinity of Christ were facing when they were dealing with the Arians. That's why we have these complex sounding arguments. That's why the whole controversy came about, and that's why we have the Nicene Creed. Now, um, at the Council of Nicaea, you, you all remember Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, he's kind of the champion, um, the, the, the uh, wise patriarch of uh, the city of Alexandria who is standing, fighting for the doctrine of the divinity and deity of the Son. Uh, Alexander is at the Council of Nicaea, and he has a young disciple there assisting him. And this disciple not only assisted him, but he also took part with Alexander in defending, debating for the doctrine of the Son, uh, the deity of the Son. And even though this, this assistant was very, very young, and um, probably mid-late 20s possibly, and he wasn't a bishop, he wasn't um, uh, really you know, on that level of authority, so to speak. Still, he, he was able to argue so intelligently and so eloquently that he really stood out from the crowd uh, where he was. And, and the Arians knew immediately at this council, they, they recognized this guy, and they knew immediately that they faced a formidable opponent in this young man. This young man's name was Athanasius. A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-S. Athanasius. Now, Athanasius was Alexander's disciple. He was 
uh, trained by him in the scripture. Um, and he knew, as Alexander had taught him, that the identity of the son was not a like matter. It wasn't something that the, the church could afford to get wrong or be vague about. Why not? Well, according to Athanasius and Alexander, it's, it's not something the church can be vague about because our salvation depends on it. Now, Athanasius goes on to have a very long ministry, and we're going to get into that a bit. During his ministry, he wrote a book called On the Incarnation of the Word. And in this book, he, he basically lays out the doctrine of the incarnation, and I feel he makes it abundantly clear in that argument why the identity of the Son is so essential. So I want to take a look real quickly at what Athanasius actually says in his doctrine of the incarnation. So I've got some uh, things that I've taken from that book. This is, these are quotes directly from Athanasius, uh, translated, of course. Um, they're a bit condensed, because I'm trying to get, just kind of hone in on the main points. And they're also, I only edited them in order to make the, the English a little more understandable. The translation I have is pretty old-fashioned English, so I just put in some simpler words in certain places. Uh, but otherwise, this is straight from Athanasius. So let's uh, let's look at this. I've, I've got ten points that Athanasius gives us. All right, point number one from Athanasius. It says this. God has made all things out of nothing by his own word, that is, Jesus Christ our Lord. Word is, he uses capital, or is translated with a capital W. And among these, having taken special pity upon the race of men, made them after his own image, giving them a portion even of the power of his own word, so that having, as it were, a kind of reflection of the word, and being made rational, they might be able to abide ever in blessedness, living the true life which belongs to the saints in paradise. So point number one from Athanasius is creation. God created man after his own image. Point two says this, He, God, brought mankind into his own garden and gave them a law, so that if they kept the grace and remained good, they might still keep the life in paradise without sorrow or pain or care. But if they transgressed, they would incur corruption and death. Point number two that Athanasius gives us is command. God gives mankind a command with a blessing if you keep it, and punishment if you disobey. Point number three, Athanasius says, but men, having despised and rejected the contemplation of God and devised and contrived evil for themselves, received the condemnation of death with which they had been threatened, and from thenceforth no longer remained as they were made, but were being corrupted, and death had the mastery over them. So point number three is fall. Athanasius tells us mankind fell. He didn't obey. Point number four, Athanasius says, quote, even in their misdeeds, men had not stopped short at any set limits, but gradually, pressing forward, had passed on beyond all measure, having turned aside to wrong and exceeding all lawlessness and stopping at no one evil, but devising all manners of new evils in succession, they became insatiable in sinning. So point number four from Athanasius is sin increased. Sin got worse and worse. Point number five, Athanasius says, quote, Death gained from that time forth a legal hold over us, 
and it was impossible to evade the law, since it had been laid down by God because of the transgression. Point number five, he says death. That's the punishment, and it has this legal uh, claim to us because of sin. Point number six, he says, quote, It would be monstrous if God, having spoken, should prove false. For God would not be true if, when he had said we should die, man died not. He says, God can't just let us off the hook. Again, he says, it were not worthy of God's goodness that the things he had made should waste away because of the deceit of the devil. For neglect real, reveals weakness on God's part if he allows his own work to be ruined. Athanasius is saying there's a divine dilemma here. God has to be true. He can't you know, circumvent his own word. At the same time, he created us for worship of him. And if the devil sort of wins us by deceit, that doesn't reflect well on God's reputation. Point number seven. What possible course was God to take? Demand repentance? But repentance would firstly fail to guard the just claim of God, for he would still be none the more true if man did not remain in the grasp of death. Secondly, Repentance would not call men back from what is their nature. It merely stays them from acts of sin. So Athanasius says repentance isn't enough. It's not good enough for God to just say, okay, repent, and I won't make you die. That's not good enough. And now he starts to argue for the incarnation. Point number eight, he says this. But if men became involved in that corruption which was their nature, and were deprived of the grace which they had, being in the image of God, what further step was needed? What was required for such grace and, re and such recall? But, capital W, the word of God, which had also, at the beginning, made everything out of naught. For his it was, once more, both to bring corruptible to incorruption, and to maintain intact the just claim of the Father. So he's beginning to reason for the incarnation. Point number, number nine. Quote, for, this is a long one, so try to bear with me on this one, but it's, it's a lot of really good stuff here. It says this, For this purpose, then, the incorporeal and incorruptible and immaterial word of God, as the Son, comes to our realm, and seeing men in the way to perish, and seeing further the exceeding wickedness of men, and seeing, lastly, how all men were under penalty of death, he... The Word, the Son, took pity on our race, and taking from our bodies one of like nature, he took a body himself. Because all were under the penalty of the corruption of death, he, the Son, gave his body over to death in our place, and offered it to the Father. goes on, it says, So men being held to have died in him, the law involving the ruin of man might be undone. For the race of men had gone to ruin, had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, come among us to meet the end of death. For by the sacrifice of his own body, he put an end to the law which was against us and made a new beginning of life for us by the hope of resurrection which he has given us. So point number nine, Athanasius says there's a substitutionary death. The Son, in substitute of us, dies and takes the penalty that God had commanded. Point number ten. And here he, he, he comes full circle and he wraps it up. He said this is why why the Son has to be God incarnate. Athanasius says, But how could this have come to pass, this substitutionary atonement, death? 
How, how could this have come to pass, save by the presence of the very image of God, our Lord Jesus Christ? For by men's means, it was impossible, since they are but made after an image. Nor by angels either, for not even they are God's images. Therefore, the word of God came in his own person, that, as he was the image of the Father, he might be able to create afresh the man after the image. Nothing else, then, was sufficient for this need, save the image of the Father. So Athanasius lays out for us this entire plan of salvation, and he begins at creation and concludes with the death and the resurrection of Christ. And his argument for the incarnation of God is this. It was God, he says, it was God himself who created man after his own image. Thus, when men fell, incurring death and corruption that God had uh, predicted, the likeness of God's image um, was corrupted. The one person who could pay the price for man's sin and restore man, as God had intended, intended him to be, that one person had to be a man. Had to be man. And also God. Man can't recreate man in his own image. So that's what Athanasius argues for us. And that's why Alexander and Athanasius were so keen to defend this doctrine. They realized if you lose the doctrine of the deity of Christ, the whole plan of salvation, the entire gospel falls apart. And that's why they fought so hard for it. Any questions? Was there any opposition to Athanasius? Yeah, a lot of opposition. My, my comment is that the fact that he was from Alexandria is extremely interesting because this is also where the later influence over the Eastern Church came that the substitutional death of Christ completely disappeared from the Eastern Church and was replaced by Greek, philo uh, Greek philosophical notions. Also coming from Alexandria, that must have been an interesting town. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. We've talked about it before. Um, how uh, Alexander, well before Athanasius, was heavily imbibed with Greek philosophical thought, and Christianity synthesized, sort of synthesized it even well before Athanasius. Origen did that, uh, and many others. Uh, so it is interesting how how biblical Athanasius is. Um, I'm surprised he he. I never knew about the ten points. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, but those ten points, by the way. That's, he doesn't say ten points. Yeah, yeah. I sort of with, sort of elicited that out of it's his writing. Uh, he's but, summarizing uh, Paul's uh, uh, exposition of uh, in Romans. It's really good. This is a summary of chapter five. Yeah, mm -hmm. really. Athanasius is really good. Really good. Yeah. And I'm I'm impressed because what came from Alexandria later is a cesspool of, of non-biblical influence. Yeah, actually at the same time. Of, mm. Very good comments. All right, so let's move on. Um, uh, Nicaea, of course, you guys have the story. We covered that last time. What happened after Nicaea? They come up with this creed. They they anathematize anybody who doesn't abide by this creed, right? And they got the 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 government. They got Constantine, the emperor, to back them. Well, in a nutshell, what happens after Nicaea is a church civil war. So to speak. 
Um, as we mentioned last time, Arius, along with Eusebius of Nicomedia and the other staunch Arian bishops, they were excommunicated and they went into exile. Uh, the bishops' posts that they vacated were given to others. Now, about three years after the council, Alexander of Alexandria died. And who do you think succeeded him? Athanasius. So Athanasius becomes the new bishop of Alexandria. I'm not sure exactly when it was, but sometime after this council, Eusebius of Nicomedia, uh, do you remember Theognis of Nicaea, the other Arian <coughs> bishop? They, all, they write a letter of recantation to the emperor Constantine. They recant their Arian position. And when they recant it, Constantine receives them, invites them back, and they get reinstated in their bishops' positions, uh, their respective bishops' positions. Uh, so they get back to their positions of power, so to speak. Now, as it proves in time, their, the, the course of events kind of shows their, their recantation was insincere. Because once they got back in their positions of power and influence, uh, they, they immediately set about to effectively employ every kind of machination imaginable to undermine the Nicene Creed, as well as to get rid of Athanasius. So good question, Kendi. Um, Athanasius gets persecuted very, um, quite cruelly by these guys. They're, they're keen to get rid of him because he becomes sort of the, um, uh, the, the uh, head, so to speak, the, the image of this movement, so to speak, of defending the deity of Christ. Um, he's kind of the champion who stands for it. He's not the only one. There's a bunch. And they persecute them all. One of the first things that these guys do is, is they get Constantine to reinstate Arius. Um, and Arius likewise makes a, a, a recantation. Athanasius doesn't believe it. Athanasius refuses to recognize Arius. And so when Constantine tries to send Arius back to um, uh, back to Alexandria, Athanasius says, no, he can't, he can't come back. So the Eusebius and the other Arian bishops, what they do is they start to concoct a whole bunch of false accusations. Um, it, ranging everywhere from greed and corruption all the way to murder and witchcraft. And they, they even hold a kangaroo synod, so to speak, and they condemn and depose Athanasius. Finally, Constantine banishes Athanasius. So we don't know, I couldn't really figure out exactly why was it because he believed one of the accusations, or was it just because, remember, Constantine wanted church unity. And so he, maybe he felt that Athanasius is a stubborn guy who just won't, you know, Except church unity. Anyway, Athanasius gets ban uh, banished to Gaul and, um, until the emperor's death. Okay? And that's basically how the story goes. The emperor dies, then his sons take over. He's got three sons. The empire divides between them. Uh, two of the sons are Orthodox Christians. One of them, Constantius, who takes over the eastern portion of the empire, is an Arian. Um, after the emperor dies, the, one of the orthodox sons writes a letter and gets Athanasius back into Alexandria, but then a little while later, Constantius, the Arian emperor, ba uh, uh, basically replaces Athanasius. Athanasius has to flee to Rome. Then they have a synod in Rome. Athanasius is cleared of all the charges, and so he gets back to Alexandria. And then these other emperors, they die. Constantius kind of has more power. 
He threatens to kill Athanasius. Athanasius runs to Rome again. Altogether in his lifetime, Athanasius is banished or exiled or flees uh, Alexandria five times. Spends a lot of his lifetime away from home, away from his uh, position as bishop. Um, at the very end of his life, he does get to go back to Alexandria, and he does die here. But he becomes this champion. He writes a lot uh, in favor of the deity of Christ, as well as a few other guys who, uh, uh, who kind of support him in that. It's a long story. It's very involved, and I think if you have the time, it's, it's great to maybe sit down and read about it. It spans the uh, decades, and it's, it spans a time beginning from the Emperor Constantine, crosses over the time of multiple emperors, until finally, at least in a temporary sense, it is resolved. Um, uh, there's an emperor who comes along, actually after Athanasius dies, his name is Theodosius. He becomes emperor in 379, and in 379, uh, or in 381, he holds another ecumenical council, and that ecumenical council meets this time in uh, Constantinople, again near Nicaea, um, and in Constantinople they reaffirm the Nicene Creed. Uh, they not only reaffirm it, but they also uh, just they, they improve upon it a, a little bit. The, the first Nicene Creed, if you remember when you, when you saw it last time, the first Nicene Creed had very little information about the Holy Spirit. There's a lot about the Father, there's a whole lot about the Son, and at the end it was just, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Next to nothing about the Holy Spirit. So you're, you're improved or revised Nicene Creed now, written up in 381, includes more information about the Holy Spirit. So it's a bit more of a complete creed. And so that was the point. So that's uh, from 325 to 381, over 50 years of um, struggle over 50 years of Arian persecution took place before the church finally kind of came to a point where, in a, in a, in a very decisive sense, you could say, they defeated Arians. It would rear its head again many times, but in a decisive way at that point, 381, um, they confirmed it. Now, the eastern, the, the fight was really mostly in the eastern empire. Uh, the west, they were pretty solidly orthodox. Um, uh, they didn't have too much about the fight there. Most of the fight went on in the east. The Arians were brutal in their tactics. They used the government. They used military power in their favor. Um, they used the emperor to their advantage. They held synods. They wrote and they rewrote the creed. Every time they wrote the creed, they had these unofficial synods where they rewrote the Nicene Creed. And every time they wrote it, they watered down the doctrine of Christ's divinity until their later creeds actually brazenly state that the Son, quote, had a beginning. Basically, they're trying to undermine and do away with um, the Nicene Creed. They also employed subterfuge. They used violence to persecute the church. They had the military on their side very often, so they used violence to persecute Orthodox Christians. They, they killed a lot of people. They beat a lot of people. people. Athanasius was just the highest profile one, but a number of bishops were actually killed. One very high-profile, well-known bishop named Paul, the bishop of uh, I'm sorry, Constantinople. He was likewise exiled at least three times, and on the third time they strangled him to death once he got to his place of exile. So they were very, very violent um, in the way that they did things. But in the end, finally, uh, by God's grace, the church was able to uh, sort of win out. Yeah.